0: You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing, creator and host, Ken Vellante, editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast. In this episode, we have Jacob uh, Forensic, who uh, I encountered through uh, uh, a book uh, that he's written. Uh, The book is called Up in the Ear. Christianity, atheism, and the global problems of the 21st century, and um, with some kind of follow-up conversations uh, with Jacob, learned about uh, the 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 book, his philosophical um, uh, project um, that I'll allow him to talk about. But uh, uh, really excited to have you on, Jacob. And uh, can you uh, let the listeners? Uh, know a little bit, uh, about yourself, about the book and, uh, where we're talking to you, where you're from, where, where you are right now.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's a true pleasure. And well, yeah. So about the book, um, to give context perhaps is to say where I'm from. And that would also just provide like ground for why I wrote the book. So. I'm from originally from Slovakia, and I come from uh, a pretty Christian household and upbringing. And mostly uh, out of my own volition, I was I was curious about these things um, growing up, and um, I was particular. I was I was fundamentalist. So you're from the states, so you probably know about that more than other places. Um, sure. So I yeah, um, I I kind of associated with Calvinist um, reasoning. And so, a lot of American um, philosophers, theologians, that influenced me early on, and um, yeah. So, so my and then um, later on in my life, uh, towards my early, um, I guess it was late teens, like early twenties. Um, I'm 24 now, so I'm still quite young. And um, at at about that time, I started kind of realizing that the world is bigger, um, more grand, and there's just a lot more going on than, than I expected in my youth, as as most people realize. And, and so I just had kind of a, um, um, a time to reflect, um, I was living in Oxford at the time, um, in England, I lived in Portsmouth as well on the South coast. And at that point, I kind of reflected more on my religion, and started reading philosophy more broadly and um, came into association with the new atheists, you know, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Denner, Richard Dawkins. And at that point, I started realizing, OK, so there's a little more here. But then uh, I still didn't know the the depth of the intellectual world of atheism, which recently has been called atheism. And so... Um, at that point, I, I was like, Okay, so what what else is written about this stuff? And at the time, you know, I'm making a long story short, at the time, I was traveling a bunch, I was um, seeing stuff, I dropped out of uh, uni, I was studying forensic psychology, actually, in Portsmouth. And so I, I traveled to Oxford, and then went to Slovakia, went, went to Greece, and all these places was living kind of the dropout uh, kind of lifestyle. And, um, and I decided finally to go back to Canada, where I'm originally also from. I'm a dual citizen, uh, raised in, in Canada for eight years. And, and so I came back to Canada, and I was like, okay, so what am I going to do? Uh, what am I going to study? What am I going to do? And um, I happened upon a book by Peter Watson, and this is – I credit this book largely to my aw- awakening to the depth of atheism. Uh, the book is called The Age of Atheists. And at that point, I realized, okay, so there's a lot going on here, and it's a 600-page volume, and yeah, yeah. So at that point, I was like, okay, there's a lot here, and and so and that's kind of where I woken. So that that that's kind of a background of of my religious uh, leanings up to up to that point, yeah.
0: Yeah, and you know, and speaking of philosophy, and I, I might be, uh, my my knowledge, my knowledge of you know Calvinism uh, in particular probably has only come through uh, philosophy, or if it's used, if I recall properly, in um, uh, uh, the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism by Max Weber, he uses Calvinism as a as, as a basis, as a stand-in for Protestant thinking and um kind of an, an economic uh, analysis but Calvinism of course with um, a strong piece of uh, predestination and the uh, mm-hmm. concept of the calling uh, for work would that be an you know accurate just kind of basic kind of uh a way yeah of laying, laying it out
1: mm-hmm. Calvinism is associated with um, a, a number of uh schools so Augustine originally, Paul and, and also Aquinas were, they they wouldn't call themselves Calvinists, of course, that came later after John Calvin. But John Calvin wouldn't call himself a Calvinist either that were his followers. And and actually, Calvinism came in response to the Arminian school of thought, which which was kind of in juxtaposition to the um, the predestination, as you were saying, um, teaching of Augustine, and most of Christendom actually up until that point and um yeah so Calvinists basically just sat down and said okay so what do we believe in and they just said that they believe in the juxtaposition of the Arminian school and so they came up with the five points of calvinism which are um, um, the tulip which is total depravity unconditional love limited atonement irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints And so all of those kind of came in, um, as a response to, to the Arminian school. And so, yeah, as you said, um, predestination based on Romans nine and a bunch of other verses, Ephesians two, eight, um, verses in the Bible, passages in the Bible that kind of stress this God's electing of his chosen people of Israel, of, um, you know, of, of, um, pagans later on as Paul as Paul was witnessing to pagans and and um and, and just kind of yeah so the the doctrines appealed to me and yeah total depravity as well uh, it seemed that all of the teachings were in connection to scripture and they were scripture supported and then also there was more of an intellectual inclination with the calvinists especially the neo calvinists of today's so, So those would include R.C. Sproul, um, Albert Moeller, Steve Lawson, um, Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, and John Piper, you know, more known ones in American um, evangelicalism. Uh, A number of which have passed away, actually, R.C. Sproul, Rabbi Zacharias, J.I. Packer, big, um, big Calvinist Christian names have um, passed away recently. So there was also that but um but yeah so that is kind of the theological backbone of my um youth yeah yeah it,
0: it, well and, and 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 thank you and i want to go i want to i want to uh build uh, a little bit on there too on uh, what you mentioned about about your about your youth and You know, as far as for purposes of discussion, Jacob, it's 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 really helpful for me to understand kind of like the narrative form of kind of like your intellectual journey, right? And what you try, uh, what you're what what you're doing uh, with your book. And I think a lot of philosophers, or theologians, and and others can understand like living as as that journey uh, of learning. Uh, but you, you mentioned a little bit about um, about when when you were younger. Do you do we ask about what you were like uh, when you were younger? And I know you made made a couple comments related to that. But how did you uh, how how did you view I don't know like things like intellectual matters or philosophy or questioning or creating things? What was your relationship you know back then? I mean, did you think about writing a book? Did you think about creating?
1: Yeah, I, actually, I, well, I was always, I, I had a number of inspirations when I was young, and people I looked up to, among which were C.S. Lewis, um, Clive Staple Lewis, the, the famous uh, Christian writer, who wrote um, Mere Christianity, which was a kind of defense of the faith, a collection of BBC talk radio um, during the, the um, span of World War II, which was then collected into a book. And, and of course, the Chronicles of Narnia and Screwtape Letters and a number of other influential works. Um, he was the friend of Tolkien, um, the, the author of Lord of the Rings, and influenced him actually into writing Lord of the Rings. And this man, I, I was obsessed with him as, as um, a young person in my teens. I loved the Narnia series. I, I, loved, I just loved the idea of, as a young person, reading about someone who is from a non- unorthodox um, background, he was Irish, and to go to Oxford from that background, uh, um, unlikely circumstances, um, getting into boarding school, not being good at mathematics, being extremely well-versed in philosophy and um, English literature. Actually, he um, went to school to, um, originally as uh, philosophy, Student and also taught philosophy at the beginning, and then later on he just became a, a, an English dom and um, just an expert in um, 16th and 17th century um, English literature, which you can see from his from his um, his writing. He's he's so well versed and has references. One of the most uh, well-read people. So I, I read about C.S. Lewis quite a bit in my youth, and that was also. One of the reasons why I moved to Oxford when I was living in Portsmouth, because I was reading a biography on Lewis and I just, I just told myself, you know what, I'm in England and why not go to this beautiful, lovely place that I'm reading about? And, and yeah, so, so as, as, um, as a young man, you know, you aspire to create and I, and and I was creating stuff at, at the time I was doing um, blogging and that became quite a big, quite big of a habit. Um, when I started university, um, I published now 350 blog posts, something over that. And, um, so, yeah, so, but originally that was my influence for sure. C.S. Lewis among the, the other ones, of course, Mark Driscoll, Matt Chandler, John Piper, those really influenced me for my Christian leaning. But then of course i abandoned that whilst i was in in oxford actually so so it was an interesting kind of um i moved there because of that but then in the end i i, I left it
0: yeah 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 um Un- uh, yeah understood uh mm-hmm. and, and thank you for that on on c.s lewis too um uh in in that that connection you have to uh, have you know, you always have that connection uh, to his work. Um, we're gonna dig uh, in a little bit, Jacob, on uh, a couple other of the philosophical um, uh, you know points and questions uh, we started to get into. But I want to ask, I thought now might be a decent opportunity to ask what you know a question I ask in in, in each episode uh, and in in particular, about your creative process and you discuss you know some great writers c s. Lewis. Uh, Tolkien, etc. Um, just so make sure we get it in here. And the big philosophical question is: Jacob, do you have a theory of art, or can you tell us what is art? <sighs>
1: Yeah, I've actually thought about this question quite a lot as, as, um, as a guitarist, a drummer, a bass player, you know, um, a writer as well. And I, I've, you know, always tried to pursue that avenue of life, you know, from early on playing in worship bands and playing in all sorts of high school bands. And even to more recently, you know, trying to release music and trying to go to studios on my own and do solo projects. And just as a person who appreciates art in general, all sorts of music from, you know, the John Mayer to Dave Matthews to the Snarky Puppy and even to to other metal and, and all this stuff, I really do appreciate most genres of music, apart from perhaps classical, which I haven't gotten into. But but yeah, so as, as art, um, a definition, a strict definition, I don't know if I would be able to provide, but I think that art, Can be quite literally anything that resonates with um, with people. um, That something that is just that you're unable to describe um, verbally what it is that you resonate with. So, so a lot of people, especially now in in music, for example, there's a big genre of just um, music that isn't well well recorded. And that isn't trying to be professional and isn't trying to sound really good. And you you see, for example, artists such as King Cruel who, you know, aren't really they're really good singers, of course, but but they try to sing in a in a different way, not the well versed way, not the you know, not not by the book. And so and that really resonates with people and some people wouldn't call that art. Hip hop wasn't called art. You know, people like Ben Shapiro, for example, would say that hip hop doesn't is is in music and for me i wouldn't be so quick to discredit something that i personally don't identify with and and so that that gets into some epistemic axis philosophy but but with with art specifically i mean it, it is really interesting to to be able to appreciate music that isn't produced well and i and i personally have Really liked music that isn't produced well and that doesn't have a lot of voices or influences on it and just has like just one person kind of producing or and with with it, I, I think that could get more difficult with something like paintings and uh, um, the fine arts, you know, because at that point it is sometimes perhaps with postmodern art and post -post postmodern art, you know, there's, there's almost, uh, you don't know where the where the boundary is of, is this good? Or is this not? But for myself, we do live in, um, you know, a beautiful time where beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And if, if art does resonate with certain people, it's always about seeing where exactly, where's the appreciation coming from. And I think that each era has you know, the classicists um, and the Renaissance and the neoclassicists and the romanticists. Each era of art really has a something that they dislike about those who preceded them and something that they disc, somehow they discredit their work and say that it's not really art and this is more complicated or anything or something like that. But I think that I personally do appreciate the simplicity. And one of my favorite drummers who played with everyone from, you know, he's played on David Letterman's show for, for years, Steve Jordan, and he's played with pretty much every musician. Um, even for John Mayer, his trio, for example, he, he said, simplicity is not stupidity. And in music, I mean, that is completely true.
0: Uh, well, thank you for that answer, Jacob. Uh, and it's great, great to hear about um, some of your background uh, in, in, in music, in music as well. Um, and, uh, I appreciate your thoughts, your philosophical thoughts on, on, on art and, uh, you know, and applying it to the work uh, that you do, uh, in, in, in music. Uh, one of the, one of the things about, uh, your book that I'd I'd love for you to go into a bit more is that obviously with the subject matter in your own personal journey, as far as answering questions, you know, uh, metaphysical questions, you know, is there God? Um, you know, and that's of course relates to something rather than nothing question mm-hmm. relates to it. But, um, you know, you have to, you talk about the, the, the influence for you in, 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 growing up and your, your thought around Christianity, Calvinism in, in some of the writing and in fiction and C.S. Lewis that you listen to. And on the other side, you have, um, you know, atheism, and when people think about you know atheism in the sense of you know that there isn't a god, and and for our you know casual listeners, you know agnostic agnosticism, uh, doubting uh, the the existence of God, it, it, you know, and it's 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 obvious to a lot of folks that um, a lot of the political culture, at least the political culture that's been uh, around in the United States recently over the last few months, and some of the kind of pitched political or ideological conflicts um, that, that have arisen. What about what about your book and the way that you structure it? do you think can help uh, in discussion, in philosophical discussion about you know what might be to be perceived to be opposites? Christianity, atheism, various belief system and what others view to be a contradictory uh, belief system. What do you think your book does to help folks chat and philosophize and maybe chat like you or I might right now?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, I think that well, this is particularly what I wanted to achieve in this book is I noticed People were talking past one another, especially when it came to religion. But it happens in in all fields, politics, most notably of late, and um, especially with your guys' election coming up. Uh, but with with um, religion, I noticed this with the new atheists. You know, with the already mentioned Harris, for example, which I adore, one of my favorite intellectuals. Uh, you know, the way he spoke about religion to overuse a term strawmanning would describe it quite well. And and then when you came to the side of the very intelligent Christian thinkers of of today, um, of John Lennox, an Oxford mathematician, Francis Collins, uh, director of the Human Genome uh, Project, and, um, and more, of course, Ravi Zacharias, very intelligent, William Lane Craig, very intelligent people you you have that you know this kind of misrepresentation of what is really going on and you know science the cognitive psychologists have been showing us that um, research on motivated reasoning and confirmation bias things that people should know and people actually i think relatively are aware of but then when they come when they come into contact with opposing views they don't really put the knowledge they have into into effect. So you have people like Harris, you know, who's completely aware. He, he's uh, I think friendly with Daniel Kahneman, a behavioral economist, winning the Nobel Prize um, in in uh, economics in 2002 for his work on uh, fast and slow thinking, System A, System B thinking, I think is what he calls it, uh, specifically. You know, this is on confirmation bias, and and yet, even despite being so close to someone like Kahneman, he he will misrepresent and misunderstand the true um, relationship religion has to society, or even the reasons people are religious in the first place, which often, you know, are we really. Uh, responsible for for those um, inclinations. I don't know if we are, I think research suggests that, you know, our biases are quite entrenched, and that it's really difficult to know, um, you know, if our views are, you know, some, uh, some result of genetics or upbringing, which roughly they're half and half I've heard. So but with my with my book, I, I chose to write and with that in mind, I chose to write knowing that people misrepresent, and they don't take this into consideration. And so I chose to divide the book into um, for and against arguments. So the, the first chapter, uh, Christianity and an, and the age of unreason, which Susan Jacoby, an incredible writer, um, spoke of. And, and then Kind of represent the argument for Christians dealing with the age of unreason. You know, have this mass um, society believing in fake news and misrepresenting and being quite uneducated. What is that phenomenon? Is it a problem? And and you know, do Christians have a really good answer for it? And can Christians urge people to reason well and use evidence and arguments and reason and logic? And are there limits to reasoning, which I believe there are crucial limits to to reasoning. And so, but I represent that argument and I propose the strongest argument. This is something that Donald Davidson, an American philosopher, proposed infamously. John Stuart Mill talked about it and, and others have talked about it. It, it. it is the way John Stuart Mill said in On Liberty that we are to represent the argument of the opposition in the best possible way and then and then deal with it, you know, and see, and see whether they agree in a way that they would, the opposition would agree with. And so that's something I, I hoped to do in, in my book. And, you know, it's up to my Christian friends now, which I, I have quite a lot of, you know, to give me feedback on, but thus far it's been pretty positive. And even in writing the book, I, I, I made sure to send manuscripts, rough drafts of the manuscript to, to people who, um, who are learning about, about these things or people who are, um, have been Christians for, for most of their lives and are more intellectually minded.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I love, I, I, love, um, your project. And if, if, if I could, um, you know, I, I relate to it, um, myself and I think everybody relates to it. If they're interested in in taking a look at these larger questions, um, you relate to it in, in, in your own way. And, um, You know, I've been thinking about these questions for a long time. I've studied, uh, you know, philosophy at the University of Rhode Island and then Mm -hmm. a master's in philosophy at Marquette Mm -hmm. University. But, you know, I've been away from the academic setting, uh, Mm -hmm. um, you know, more or less for about uh, uh, 20 years after teaching uh, uh, philosophy at the University of Rhode Island uh, for a year. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I I really like about the questions that you bring up um, is because you know, I think I think about the conflicts that that people have. And, you know, I think some of those uh, are are theoretical. Right. And I think some of those uh, are behavioral. Right. And both of these things I- interact. And so by on the theoretical, you, you I mean, you 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 kind of lay out, you know, the kind of the, the general conflict and, and thought around that, um, One thing, one story that always really, really hit me around um, uh, discussions, uh, theological or large metaphysical discussions, was there was this group of uh, Buddhists and a group of Christians, and the, um, the kind of the more heady intellectual types had been arguing, you know, about you know, is there one God, right? And in the Christianity, there'd be, you know, a monotheist, a monotheistic God. And in Buddhism, there's like, well, there's no self, no ego, ultimately no sin, no other entity, you know, beyond beyond humans. And all this debate's going on. And meanwhile, the the practitioners of the, of the faith, in this case, there are monastery, um, Christians and Buddhists, started to compare their day and they're like, well, what do you do in the morning? Well, we check on the bees and what do you do after that? Well, we prepare some breakfast and then we take a walk and they compared their days and they were the same. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) They, they, their schedule is the same. Uh, It didn't, it it, it didn't matter. So that always like intrigued me so deeply Mm -hmm. because I had Mm -hmm. found myself so entrenched on the intellectual or the ideological uh, metaphysical opposition and then some of the yeah. practitioners of the faith saying, well, not a whole lot separating my day from, from, from yours. And obviously that's not a solution, um, but um, a very intriguing thought and in kind of a way that I tried to see how can you bridge the the differences? How different are we when we go about the day? And some of us are gonna be very different, right? Um, yeah. But there might be more overlap than we'll, we'll admit intellectually or behaviorally.
1: Yeah. No, actually, that's that's a really good point. I mean, I personally, one of the reasons why I dislike my own field of philosophy, your field, is because we do get boggled down in these metaphysical, ontological, epistemological questions when, when really you look outside and you just see people finding ways to behave morally, you know, and finding ways to be decent to one another without even knowing what utilitarianism deontology or the virtue ethics are and and you have that within religion and you know as you said uh, that's a really good example um with buddhist monks and you know the various different eastern religions and you had it two thousand years ago with the pre-socratics and the socratics and the um all these various different schools of thought and so yeah i think that that is a there's, there's large research. Um, Eric Schwitzgebel, I think his name is, um, actually showed that moral philosophers are not more likely with a number of studies. He showed that they're not more likely to um, clean after themselves after conferences, uh, respond to emails to students, and a number of other um, <laughs> me... than, than other professors. And they're not more like other philosophy professors. And they're not more likely to do it than other professors in general. So the moral philosophers are not behaving better than philosophers, which could have been okay, I guess, because they're also introduced to moral philosophy, but they're not even better, better behaved than physicists and, you know, biologists who have basically no, uh, except maybe for some electives early on in their undergraduate degrees, you know, they, they didn't really have access to moral philosophy, at least not in the academic setting. So that is also interesting stuff yeah but yeah that's that's a good point
0: well, yeah, and and I think uh, i I really enjoyed and uh, in, in really latched on to what you had said as far as I think it, it might have come out of of Mill of uh, presenting the argument, uh, presenting the argument and presenting in a way that is is fear that uses common or proper terms to calibrate and to ex you know show what you're saying. the other Argument that we see many of the times is, of course, you portray your opponent's argument in the most silliest of fashions and the most ridiculous, and then just swipe it mm-hmm. right out of the way. And and uh, people using kind of ad hominem attacks to yeah. attack, saying what? And uh, so um, you, you, you get right after this too, and it's it's part of one of the questions we had uh, talked about, um, Jacob. Uh, you're talking, you know, Christian, Christianity and atheism in this in this battle, uh, or, or the way that we think about it, kind of maybe the theoretical uh, conflict in a very, uh, you know, we think of 21st century, we think of the year 2020, and various fractures that can be observed around the world uh, and, and stresses um, due to a pandemic. But the age-old question sits back. Um, I think in in your study and back behind your thoughts is the question of morality that you just brought up, or or mm-hmm. how how people behave, and the common criticism of, of atheism is what is the moral, what is the moral framework? Uh, how do we how do we evaluate behavior without a larger arbiter or or standard? And I know you have some thoughts on that. Do you want to talk about atheists? Can they be moral? In morality?
1: Yeah, it's it's actually it's one of the more common questions atheists get because that is I, I mean I remember when I turned to atheism in uh, 1920 and that was my first thought was among my first thoughts that I remember is like okay so so what do I what can I get to do now and what do I do um, you know there was kind of this ambivalence or um, you know the, the unknown. And and so, but with with morality, I think atheists have as good a job, if not better, um, at at providing a consolable moral world. So, first of all, um, much of our moral understanding has to do with our genes, and you know kin altruism early on developing in hunter gatherer societies, and you see this not only in with early, um, you know, Homo sapiens, etc. You see it with um, other species, non-human animals as well. You see cooperation in in species that are separate from our animal tree. You know, elephants and dolphins who have completely developed separately from us, and they have no evolutionary lineage to us. And so, kin altruism is a perfectly relevant standard to. Um, translate or to to look at to see whether there is any um, moral understanding. And we see that there is some morality and you see it in animals. Of course, it's not as developed because of cognitive um, capabilities that are completely different and uh, linguistic capabilities. And we've developed culture and society and writing. And this really helped us, you know, um, in in providing kind of expanding on one another, and I talked about that in my book that you know the development of writing in in ancient civilizations helped people critique and expand and develop early um, texts on morality, basic uh, you know uh, um, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of morality. But that later on developed into human rights and people wanting to have um, some some fairness in society not being taxed inappropriately. And eventually that led to um, you know, revolutions and the French Revolution, um, you know, David Hume talking against absolutist monarchy and people uh, declaring independence from monarchs as Americans sure. had. Yeah. And yeah, so so the the origins were of course weak and it took us forever to develop um kind of a strict moral sense. But the the kind of basic morality we have entrenched within us from from early kin uh stages. And so I I don't think that and that is something that is just, you know, it's not a matter of Timothy Keller talks about this in Making Sense of God, his book, that that we atheists have this arbitrary morality. No, we have as good of a morality as the Christians have. And furthermore, there's also just problems within the Christian narrative of, of what exactly the morality is. You know, is it really something that they're getting from the Bible, or is it something they're getting societally? And I think that the evidence is really for the latter case—that societally they're they're much more prone to um, be less critical of, of, um, for example, gay rights or trans rights, even you know, of late, uh, apart from fundamentalists. But but in the 1600s, you wouldn't have that. You would have, you know, the morality of Aquinas, Augustine, Luther, and Calvin are complete contradictions to what we think of as moral today. So you know, together with other authors, I ask, you know, where is this transcendental metaphysical reality morality that you know Christians speak of? And I, I, I can't see it. you know so so within that question that the Christians ask atheists, you know, how can you guys be moral? Really they're they're supposing that they've been moral for two millennia. And if you look at the historical records, you know, Christians were not really acting in any uh, morally significant way, if anything. In the Hellenic world of Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato, you'd have a lot of a lot of um, schools developing that were just really stressing moral conduct and virtuous lives. You know, people thinking that that was pretty much all there was to life. Aristotle saying that that is the happiest life and you know plato stressing that only the rational should rule for example which today we think of as anti-democratic but so i think that we really do have um a good sense of of morality and primarily that is because of genes but then also uh, social obligations laws customs these things have changed through the centuries and you know a lot of our morality comes from the 1960s from the rights revolution you know pre rights revolution women often were still considered inferior and obviously there were ethnic problems with a lot of um, a lot of states were were experiencing and today we still haven't we still do not have a, a developed kind of moral sense. A lot of us, you know, a lot of people aren't sensitive to racial issues, for example. A lot of, a lot of people aren't even sensitive to uh, domestic abuse problems in the world. Russia, for example, not having laws against it within marriage. So so I don't think we have a developed sense of morality. We're still figuring it out. But we do have the the guilt and we have the social ostracization and those are perfectly good reasonable ramifications for immoral behavior and you know so so everyone has that i mean if you do if you do not have uh, sociopathic um, tendencies you do have just something within you and then christians of course can talk about conscience and where that's implanted from but i think patricia Churchillin has perfectly explained in her book conscience and others have done this as well that that really all everything. I've, I think Patricia, Patricia Churchland said this, that it all comes down to caring and bonding and early yeah. bonding. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think that's a good way to think about it.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate you mentioning that. I mean, I think, uh, I think there's a, there, there's a bounty of, of, uh, you know, of areas uh, to explore about how human beings, you know, on a basic level can cohabitate, act morally mm-hmm. and, or what the basis is for that. And, Certainly, the the exit, the, you know, the um, you know, the ethics of cure is one, mm-hmm. and I also think underneath the things that you're saying, I heard a lot of this because I've studied um, kind of the role of shame and guilt, right, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, general idea of guilt being more internally driven, uh, shame, mm-hmm. when you're looking at a more public setting and where that would work to modify behavior one way or another, not talking about the, the quality or why or whether that behavior should be modified, but they're powerful drivers, uh, societally. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you're right in saying that, um, you know, an atheist is not operating outside of the context of the the conditions in the world that they live in, right? Yeah. It isn't yeah. like let me let me import the the manual of behavior from outside of all this. It's inside because you're still mm-hmm. in, in those parameters. And uh, I think there's a lot of fertile ground and uh, some good indications that you give of of places of, of 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 where to look, you know, of where to look and where to think about. Um, uh, morality, uh, for, you know, uh, an, uh, an atheist morality or, or a modern morality, um, and having those discussions, um, Jacob, I wanted to ask you a, a, a little bit, um, just to make sure I got it as far as, uh, with your connection, uh, with, with music, you want to lay that out a little bit more as far as, um. You mentioned a few instruments that 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 you played in other yeah. projects. As far as your expression,
1: yeah, well, yeah. Um, as being raised as a, a Christian, you know, you're exposed to to music, and you know, every church needs a bass player, needs a guitarist, needs a drummer, or any other musician. So, yeah, we were we were exposed to music, and I was taught how to play basic chords on bass and you know, that developed into me really wanting to learn how to play on drums and me and some close friends would just play on drums at infinitum, you know, on the weekends at our church. and, And that was really great. And, and then I just got more inclined to, to pursue guitar. And I was really influenced by John Mayer, um, you know, his, his acoustic stuff and, you know, Ben Howard and others. And, um, And recently I've been, I've been, I've recorded last year and I've been wanting to record here in Slovakia while I'm here. And so I will be uh, releasing something on Spotify under a name I do not know yet. So I can't, but it would probably be something, something like my name, but, but I would want to have music officially on Spotify and it would probably just be um, acoustic Um, No singing, just kind of layered acoustic music with with some background stuff on kind of like study music, even or just kind of thinking meditative uh, music. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that, Jacob. And I think one of the things um, that I try to do and the reason why I asked again for a little bit more on the program is. Um, you know, looking at, at the, at your creative endeavors, obviously writing a book, mm-hmm. getting into these very uh, difficult, heady questions is one thing. But, um, you know, I, I find a lot of times we, we're, you know, we, we're up to a lot of different things as far as creating, um, you know, creating things. And, uh, I really appreciate your additional and, and look forward and, uh, you know, to, to seeing you get to your goal of, of releasing mm-hmm. music, um, yeah, thank you ja- very much. Yeah, 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 very very much. So, um Jacob, uh why is there something rather than nothing?
1: Yeah, so this que- it's a loaded question. I think that <laughs> uh, Yeah. <laughs> um well, first of all, I think that philosophers have been too preoccupied with this question. I think that, you know, arguments from causation, I'll, I'll read them dozens of times, and I still don't understand really what Aristotle is saying. Sure, And, sure. and so yeah, but you know, so that that's, my understanding of this question is that up until John Locke, the and Newton, you all of the discussion about the the question for first, why is there something rather than nothing was pretty much pointless, the epistemic ideal, you know, of Plato, and Aristotle of focusing on the primary cause was kind of a waste of time i would say and i think that philosophers would crucify me for this especially you know in metaphysics and and all these very legitimate yeah yeah absolutely though yeah 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 exactly well as someone you you're from metaphysics your background i mean i i will read these explanations and i i really don't understand how how they have any bearing on the world. But I mean that is also uh, kudos to them for their intelligence of really getting at Why? Why? But but then the problem with those explanations, I think, is that and John Locke kind of talked about this, and Newton talked about this, and Galileo specifically, you know, scientists. They were saying that that um, we sh- we needn't know the primary cause. We don't have to know, you know, the things that are to them. They explained it as the unexplainable. We need to explain basic natural phenomena. And so with this question, I look to evidence of basic natural phenomena. And you know, some scientists have been talking about empty empty space, and really that there wasn't such a thing as complete nothingness that there was something. And I think that, you know, maybe I for myself as not a trained scientist, and, and I only dabble in the popular science, I don't even look at the scientific literature. I would, I would, I find that a completely justifiable position. I don't really know why there has to be nothing, strictly speaking, you know, as a no thing. I can imagine um, all sorts of, you know, different, a type of matter or uh, a type of empty space, which isn't really nothing for my understanding of it. It's, 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 it's atoms and it's some some sort of antimatter or, or dark energy or something like that yeah sure sure yeah so so that's that that would be kind of my explanation is that i don't think we need a primary cause i don't i don't think we need and and then also it, you're you're really quickly jumping into the god of the gaps argument if you jump to monotheism you know and and you're jumping into all sorts of conclusions i don't think that there's any any satisfactory satisfactory position for someone who is, uh, you know, strict logician, you know, there's no logical explanation. I think that even well, physicists will disagree about this uh, ad infinitum. You know, you'll have physicists who say that there's, there's no possibility of there of this happening. And you'll have physicists like Lawrence Krauss saying that, 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 it's completely reasonable. And for myself as a lay person, it's really difficult to make sense of it. And I don't know if we really need and that's kind of my own, quote unquote, philosophy of science, is that, you know, a lot of a lot of our scientific explanations, we don't have the answers, at least as lay people, other people have the answers, and we have more a collective intelligence versus an individualistic intelligence. Individually, we really don't know that much. But collectively, when we we get together, we we come up with solutions. And with my personal life, you know, this question particularly, it doesn't really uh, keep me up at night, because I, I really do explain, I, exp- I explained it as I don't really know if there had to be nothing. And I don't know if that I, I really haven't even come across that position. It's almost like the same argument as we were talking earlier, about morality, people propose a binary position between objective and relativistic morality as if it's only the two right that right either we have objective or no and i think that is the same with the nothing or something it's like well maybe there was something all the time why do we have to have a primary cause so that's kind of briefly my position
0: well no and i appreciate that too i found that uh you know as as a backdrop uh, backdrop and prompt around uh creativity but of course the large metaphysical question i've been very influenced by um the science that i've studied and read showing that the 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 way that this question and other questions are framed uh you know might just be outmoded right it might just Mm -hmm. be outmoded on the something and, and and nothing and Uh, reframed maybe Krauss or others in that circle, uh, as I mentioned before, saying, why is there something, right? Like move away from the nothingness uh, and and, kind of get away from larger questions that there needed to be, you know, the void and pointing to the void as an kind of outmoded concept, you know, pre-scientific almost. So, definitely a lot of uh, ways to engage around this uh, question and, uh, and and I appreciate your thoughts. Uh, Jacob I want to um, there's plenty for us to talk about. I assume this is probably uh, the first time that we'll chat on a something rather than nothing mm-hmm. podcast but prior to uh, uh, prior to us uh, departing I, I wanted to give you the opportunity um, I'd love for folks to be able to come into contact. You know, uh, you know whatever hints you can give around whether it's n- your writing, uh, music. Uh, you mentioned some of your blog posts. Anything related to that that you want to share with uh, listeners, just as far as to you know, kind of come in contact with you and, and maybe uh, you know these debates.
1: Yeah, um, I well, my book is on Amazon, and I guess I I have an Instagram devoted to my guitar. And I have an Instagram that's much more active, devoted to uh, um, kind of travel and book reviews. So I, I published around 200 book reviews on, on that Instagram account. And now I just primarily focus on kind of travel stuff. So I'm a, kind of a history nerd. And so I like to post about some hist- historical stuff going on in Europe and, and even in the West. And so if people want to get in touch, that's Jacob.forensic.official. And it's uh, J A K U B dot F E R E N C I K, and I guess I guess there's going to be links of, of some sort, or um, it's going to be written down somewhere. But but yeah, so that's kind of primarily. And my blog is on Medium, and that's mainly on philosophy, religion, and politics. I, I'm actually strongly in the about to switch to a political science major so it's it's something that i've i've really been more in tune with and even for my masters i'm i'm strongly considering continuing with political science and so yeah 300 plus blog posts there and apart from that it's just the the average twitter and facebook stuff
0: yeah uh well and, and thanks for sharing that too i actually i'm i'm looking forward to taking a look at um you know, your book reviews. I love to read the book reviews. There's a way of coming into contact with some of the thoughts that are out there and seeing how uh, intellectuals uh, engage them. Um, Look forward to that. But I wanted to thank you, Jacob. Um, I I really enjoyed, um, uh, you know, coming in contact with your work. and, uh, And like I said, there's obviously a ton of ton of st- stuff that developed from our conversation and talk about further i hope we have that opportunity but i just wanted to thank you for your time because uh uh some great some great bigger philosophical questions and discussions that the show gets into although it's a philosophy and art podcast and uh mm-hmm. i just wanted to thank you for your
1: contribution uh, to, to the show no thank you so much for having me i mean it's been a real pleasure and i like even the questions have been amazing And, and yeah, I hope to be back. All right. Uh, Thank you so much,
0: Jacob. And uh, I hope to talk to you again very soon.
1: Thank you, yeah. Bye now.